0: Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verses uh, 17 through 21 will be our sermon text for this morning. If you've been with us uh, for the past few weeks, you know we have been working through Galatians uh, slowly, uh, but we've been working through Galatians, and um, we come to Galatians 2, 17 this morning. Before we read God's Word, let's pray together again. Please pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your uh, great love, for Your great mercy. We thank You that we can come to You. We can draw near to You with all of our uh, sin and our baggage and our rebellion. Uh, We can lay it at Your feet uh, in all of our trouble and our trials and our difficulties, and we can come to You for comfort and help. We come to You now, Father. We come to Your Word. Uh, We pray that You would speak to us uh, from Your Word, we pray that you would give me words to say that are for the upbuilding of your people. We pray that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and transform us by your spirit as we hear your word. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in our time together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 2, uh, 17 to 21, I'm actually going to back up two verses and begin reading in verse 15. So Galatians 2, I'll begin in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Well, there are some people who believe that Christianity is too restrictive. You know, Christians are those people who don't want anyone to have any fun. Uh, that's a critique you're likely to hear from some today, at least, that Christians are always talking about obedience and duty. It's kind of a downer. In fact, there, there is one person, I think I mentioned this before, but there is one person who defined Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone somewhere Maybe happy. <laughs> and maybe you've been a part of a church uh, where you felt constantly looked down upon, uh, constantly condemned or judged. Uh, that there was this abundance of rules, and you can kind of sympathize with that view of Christianity. There's actually another uh, view of Christianity, though, that is quite the opposite. There are some who say or have said, at least in the past, that the Christian message is of a God who is actually too gracious. Uh, This was the critique you you were likely to hear uh, both from the Jewish people in Paul's day, uh, but also from Roman Catholics during the Reformation. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church said of the Reformers at times that their doctrine of grace promoted sin so Christianity, you, you, you may know, Christianity teaches because of what Jesus did in obeying as a human being in our place, in going to the cross, in undergoing punishment for us, in being rejected by the Father for us, we can now be accepted in Him. Our acceptance with the Father is not based on whether we keep the rules or not, Uh, But it's based on the fact that Jesus kept the rules in our place. He obeyed in our place. He bore the punishment for our failure. And So part of the Christian message is actually that you, you, you do not have to obey in order for God to accept you. God's arms are open wide right now to accept you just as you are. That's what we just sang a few moments ago. As you sit in your seat with all of your sin, with all of your lack of self-control and your anger and your lust and your pride and your selfishness, God is actually ready to embrace you through Christ. You can turn away away from yourself and your sin and you can set your eyes on Jesus and you will be forgiven. You will be accepted by the Father right now. There is in fact no one uh, who looks to Jesus whom God would or, or will turn away. There is no one whom God will turn away. Some say that this God is is too gracious, too accepting, too welcoming, Uh, that God's love is so all-embracing, He's almost like a a cosmic enabler, right? People go to church, they they find out that God loves them, uh, and then they go out and live like devils the rest of the week. And then they come back to church, and God absolves them of all responsibility, and then He sends them back out to do it all over again, These, obviously, are two pretty different views of Christianity, right? On the one, Christianity is too restrictive and God is oppressive. And on the other hand, Christianity is too gracious and God is a cosmic enabler. Uh, uh, Just as a side note, you know, one of the things this tells us is that our particular critique of Christianity is probably culturally conditioned, right? Uh, People have critiqued it in different ways at different times from radically different ends of the spectrum, But both of these critiques are really caricatures, aren't they? But I would actually say this. Uh, If if you are not tempted to view Christianity as too gracious, then you probably don't fully understand the Christian message. see, in that sense, the first century Jews understood the Christian message a lot better than 20th century Americans. Paul was constantly accused of preaching a message that led to sin. He was accused of preaching, well, he did preach that the more we sin, the more grace God shows. We read that in Romans 5 earlier. But he was accused of preaching, therefore, we should sin all the more to get more grace. Uh, He did preach, we're not under law, but under grace. And he was accused of preaching, therefore, you should sin as much as you please. See, in Galatians, Paul, uh, again, was accused of preaching a message that made Christ a promoter of sin. And that brings us to uh, the, the question, which is also the first point on our outline, does grace promote sin? And uh, you can see our outlines on the back of your bulletin, there are three points there, does grace promote sin? And then as we answer that, we're going to talk about the limits of the law and the life of faith. So does grace promote sin, the limits of the law, and the life of faith? First, does grace promote sin? You know, some, some people uh, do say uh, that there is an inherent problem with our idea of grace. I mean, if God accepts me purely by grace, now grace is God's unearned favor. That's what grace means. It means favor. Uh, if God accepts me purely on the basis of, of his unearned favor then it really no longer matters how I live. And so Paul puts the question in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If the more I sin, the more God shows grace to me, then really I should sin all the more because I want to get more grace, right? Some of Paul's opponents said what this whole grace thing meant was uh, Galatians 2.17, Christ is a servant of sin. And what they were probably teaching was that Paul's idea of grace had just gotten out of hand. Uh, you know, while, while you may be justified, uh, you, that is, you may be declared righteous or declared acceptable with God, you may be justified by Christ. The Mosaic law, they said, is really necessary to keep us from living in sin. And so, sure, you can have your grace, but you need the law, too. Now, let me step back and come at it another way. The book of Galatians has actually two main themes. Both of them have to do with the relation between the Jewish law and Christianity, or the Mosaic law and Christianity, uh, The Mosaic law was given by God in the Old Testament. God gave that law to Israel through Moses. That's why we call it the, the Mosaic law. And um, Christianity, right, is a continuation of God's work in the Old Testament. Uh, clearly, there's something new in Christianity, but it's not that, that it, it's not a new, it's a newness that is built on the old, right? Not a newness that scraps the old and starts over, right? And, and so the, the question is, on the relationship between the mosaic law and this new era in the life of God's people. You could break that down into into two different questions, really. Do Christians have to live by the mosaic law? do Christians have to live by the Mosaic law? Uh, It's it's a question about our standard for living, right? Uh, God does have a standard for his people, and once it was codified in this law, in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic law, is is God's standard for us the Mosaic law still? That includes things like not eating shellfish, right? Or or other things like that, the whole law in the Old Testament. Do Christians have to abide by that? Uh, But the, the second question, do Christians have to live by the Mosaic Law? The second question builds off of that. If the Mosaic Law is necessary, does that mean our status before God is, depending, uh, is dependent on how well we keep that law? Right? Is my relationship to God dependent on how well I obey the laws in the Old Testament? Okay, or, or put more generically, maybe this is a little more helpful, uh, there, there are these two questions. One, is rule keeping the way to move forward in the Christian life? Is that how we grow in the Christian life? By keeping rules. And two, does my rule keeping, if that's the case, does my rule keeping, is that what actually makes me acceptable to God? Now, Paul's answer to this second question is an emphatic no, right? The Mosaic law does not and never could make you righteous with the Father. The Mosaic law could never make anyone accepted by God. No law can. Right? Your, your status with God is not dependent on your keeping uh, the Mosaic law or any other law for that matter. We looked at this last week, right? We, we said we saw that we're justified, we're declared righteous, declared acceptable to God the Father, not on account of works that we do, but on account of Jesus' work that we receive by faith. We're free from the law as a means of proving ourselves. We're accepted because of the work of Jesus received by faith alone. And then that leaves us, though, with this second question. Is rule-keeping, even if it doesn't determine my status before God, is it a way to move forward in the Christian life? Is this what sort of moves us forward day by day, grows us in holiness before God? And that brings us uh, to verse 17. Verse 17 says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ?" Than a servant of sin. Now, Paul is doing a couple of things here. Uh, He's he's using his opponent's accusation against them and he's turning it into a question, right? Is Christ a servant of sin? They accused him of Christ being a servant of sin. He's saying, okay, is that true? And of course, he says, absolutely not, right? Uh, But he's also speaking specifically as, as a Jewish person in this verse. So, uh, the word sinners in verse 17, when Paul says, if we too are found to be sinners, points us back to verse 15. Verse 15, Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So, in the eyes of of the Jews of that day, Gentiles were sinners. They were lawbreakers because they didn't keep the Mosaic Law. The Jews were not sinners, right? They were law keepers. They kept the Mosaic Law. And Paul is saying, if I as a Jew seek to be justified, seek to be accepted in Christ and not in my performance of the Mosaic law, and that leads me to give up the law, I become a lawbreaker. No different from a Gentile sinner. And if I'm no different from a Gentile sinner, has Christ become a servant of sin? See, the issue is the Mosaic law. If if I become a Christian and I get rid of that law, i become a sinner in the eyes, at least, of the Jewish people of the day. And Christ seems to be promoting sin. Paul's opponents, the Judaizers, uh, had a solution for that. Keep the law, right? I mean, all Christians should just keep the Jewish law. That uh, was the only thing, that they might have said, that's the only thing that will keep you from falling into sinful, rebellious behavior. What other safety net is there? Don't don't take that grace thing too far. You need the law to keep you from sinning, they said. Otherwise, grace promotes sin. Okay, so we said there are these two questions at the heart of Galatians. Does my rule-keeping make me acceptable to God? Paul answers with an emphatic, no. But is rule-keeping a way to move forward in the Christian life? The Judaizer said yes. (coughs) Yes. Yes, you need to do this. You need to keep the Mosaic Law. That's how you'll grow in the Christian life. And and this is often, it's actually often the way we think as well. Um, This is where we get the modern uh, critique of Christianity as being, you know, so rules focused. Christians think somehow the right rules will make me holy. Then I'll be pleasing to God. We think the right law, right, the right rule, the right routine, the right program, the right Bible verse, the right self-help book is going to move me ahead in the Christian life. If you want real Christian maturity, right, stick to this routine for, for 30 days to a holier you. I mean, don't you often ask, you know, if you're a, whether you're a Christian struggling with sin or whether you're not a Christian struggling with some kind of self-destructive habit, don't you often ask, right, well, what am I missing, right? And what are you looking for? You're looking for some, some rule, some tip, some program. That will just give you what you need to to get over that hurdle and get get done with that behavior. We're looking for a silver bullet, right? We're looking for the magic wand that will move us ahead in holiness. And the Judaizers said, look, you, you want to be holy, it's easy. Just keep the Mosaic law. No problem. Otherwise, if you reject it, they said, well, then Christ is becoming a servant of sin. You reject this law, you have nothing. And you're just going to fall into sin just like the Gentiles. We have our own version of that too, right? We say, if you don't do X, then you're undisciplined as a Christian, right? If you don't follow my rules for Bible study or prayer or sacrificial giving, if, if you don't follow my rules for what to watch or what to wear or how to vote, it, 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 then you're no different from the non-Christians around you. And all we've done is we've exchanged the Mosaic law for our own system of rules and said, if you're a Christian, you need to do X, Y, and Z. You need to follow these kinds of rules. And the question is, does it work? Does does that that rule-based living, does it work? Does it actually grow me in Christ? Is rule-keeping the way to move forward in the Christian life? Does taking on lots of rules actually make us better people? Which brings us to our next point, which is the limits of the law. You know, in these verses, Paul shows us, uh, he shows us the limits of the law, he also shows us sort of the function of the law, and he hints at the purpose of the law, so the, the, the limits and the function and the purpose. And verses 18 and 19 and 21, they kind of build on one another in such a way that I actually think it's, it's easier to understand them if you work backwards, right? So if you start at verse 21 and get that one, that makes sense then in verse 19, and if you get that one, that makes sense in verse 18. Uh, Maybe it's just me, but we're going to skip down to verse 21 and work backwards for a minute. Verse 21 says this. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, I don't want to be unnecessarily confusing here, but I actually think when Paul, it's at least plausible, uh, that when Paul uses the phrase grace of God in verse 21... That he's actually talking about the law. Right? Bear with me. Bear with me. How could grace mean law, Luke? Okay? Just that's confusing, but bear with me. So, Paul has been saying that grace, and by that I mean grace, uh, means uh, <laughs> that grace means the Mosaic law is unnecessary. And Paul's opponents were likely saying, Paul, you talk so much about grace. But when you you say that the law is unnecessary for righteousness, you're neglecting God's grace to our Jewish forefathers in giving them the law. Paul, that was God's grace too. And so in verse 21, Paul says, no, no, I'm not nullifying this grace. I'm not rejecting God's grace given to our Jewish forefathers. I'm just putting it in its right perspective. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through that law, then Christ died for no purpose. See, if one could become righteous through obeying the Mosaic law, then the death of Jesus is unnecessary, right? The implication is the Mosaic law cannot lead to righteousness. It was never intended to. That's the limit of the law, right? The law cannot cannot engender righteousness. The law can't make you a good person. One cannot live a righteous life simply by keeping the Mosaic law. It just won't work. And so to our question, is rule-keeping the way to move forward in the Christian life? Paul's answer is no, right? Righteousness does not come through the law, any kind of righteousness. Uh, To put it in, in sort of our theological speak, not only can you not be justified through the law, you can't be sanctified through the Mosaic law either, Not only can the law not make you accepted by God, it cannot make you a more acceptable person. If the law could do that, then Christ died for no purpose. If the law could make you a good person, then the law could actually earn you acceptance with God. And why would Christ go through all the trouble, right, in his incarnation, his life, his persecution and arrest and mockery and trial and crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection? Why would he do that if we could just make ourselves righteous by the law? No, as Paul says elsewhere, the law is powerless to make us righteous. Righteousness does not come through the law. That's the limits of the law, right? It cannot, that's what it can't do. It cannot make us righteous. Well, what about its its actual function? What does it do? Well, look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. What does the law actually do? If it doesn't make us righteous, what does it do? The law condemns. That's the function of the law. The law shows us our sin, Paul says elsewhere. The law condemns us to death for our failure. Paul says, through the law, I died to the law. When was that? When did Paul die to the law? When did the law put Paul to death? Well, it was on the cross. That's how Paul explains it in verse 20. He says, for I have been crucified with Christ. When did Paul die to the law? When he was crucified with Christ. It was the law that condemned Christ to die for our sins. It was the law that put Christ to death because the wages of sin is death. And faith unites us to Christ so that through faith in Christ, we are crucified with him. Christ's mockery of a trial on earth, his guilty verdict, was a twisted reflection of Christ's trial in heaven where Christ was found guilty In our place for our sins. The law pronounced its verdict and Christ died. Through faith we are united to Christ and what is true of him becomes true of us. He died, so we have died. Now Paul doesn't just say through the law I died, but through the law I died to the law. As Paul says in Romans 7, the law is only in force as long as one lives. The law is not binding on dead people. Once a criminal is executed, the law has no more say about him. Paul died to the law, which means the law has no more say over him. He is free from the law's guilt. He is free from the law's condemnation. He is free from the specific ordinances of the Mosaic law. Okay, So so the limits of the law, it can't make you righteous, No law can make you righteous, but its function, at least one of the law's functions in Scripture, is actually to condemn, to condemn sin, and to put us to death. So, limits can't make us righteous. Function, condemn, and put to death. Okay, what's the point? What's the purpose of all of this? What is the purpose of this whole dying to the law? Well, again, verse 19 says... Uh, which we just read a moment ago, for through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. See, it's through dying to the Mosaic law that Paul comes to the point of actually living for God. That is actually a really radical statement. It may not seem like a radical statement, but it is a radical statement that dying to the Mosaic law, the God-given law in the Old Testament, dying to the Mosaic law enabled Paul to live to God. Why would that be so? In part, it has to do with the nature of the Mosaic Law. Why did God give the Old Testament Law? What was the purpose? Paul's short answer, we'll see this later in Galatians as well, Paul's short answer is to point us to Christ. That was the purpose of the Law. The Law leads us to Jesus, Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3. The whole point of the Law is to drive us forward to Jesus. That's the point of the Law. Now that we have, have Jesus, what sense does it make to go back to the law? Now it's all of this that then makes sense of verse 18. So verse 18, backing up one more, verse 18 says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul, again, is likely talking about the law here. This is what Peter did in verses 11 through 14. He tore down the law on the basis of faith in Christ, but then he rebuilt it out of fear. He he, he had stopped following the law, but then he started following it again out of fear. And the question is, why would rebuilding the law, why would going back to the Jewish law uh, prove you to be a transgressor? For one, notice at this point Paul has turned his opponent's argument on its head a little bit. They said, if you reject the Mosaic Law, you prove yourself to be a sinner. Paul says, if you rebuild the Mosaic Law, that's when you prove yourself to be a real transgressor of the law. Why? What sense does that make? Why is it that now keeping the law would prove that you're a transgressor? Well, what have we already said? What was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was not to make us righteous, but to point us to Christ. Which means if I turn away from Christ and back to the law for righteousness, I'm missing the whole point of the law. The Mosaic law is, they're built into the Mosaic law as a kind of planned obsolescence, right? We we hear a lot about that phrase today, maybe, uh, some of us do, particularly with computers and other electronics. You know, it seems hard to get your money's worth before it's obsolete and you have to buy a new phone or a new computer, right? Uh, The Mosaic law isn't quite like that, but... uh, But think of it like this. Think of it like rules for courting. You know, once upon a time, there were rules for courting. You could uh, talk to a girl in public, but not in private, right, you could could take her out if a chaperone were present. Uh, You could write letters with certain stipulations, whatever, I don't know what the rules were, but you, you get the point, there were rules for courting. Rules for courting are not meant to last. Eventually, you get married and all of those rules are thrown out the window. Going back to the Mosaic Law after coming to know Christ is like a man who's so enamored with the rules for courtship that he keeps them in force even after he gets married. It completely misses the point. The Mosaic Law had a specific purpose, not to make us righteous, but to point us to Christ. Now, one application for this is uh, don't try to live out the Mosaic Law. Okay, now you have your application for the day. Um, okay, my guess is no one in here was actually tempted to do that. Here's another application. You know, if the Mosaic Law cannot make you righteous, one implication is, if the God-given Mosaic Law cannot make you righteous, one implication is, no other law can either. Right? Th- there's no rule there's no law, there's no program, there's no routine, there's no self, self-help book that can make you righteous. Why is that? It's because those things cannot renew your heart. They, they may be helpful in some ways, but they can't reach your heart. Romans 8.3 says, The law weakened by the flesh cannot enable us to fulfill the law. It cannot do this. Because whatever the law commands, our sinful heart, our flesh, remains. Which brings us to our final point, which is on the life of faith. Paul has said that he died to the law so that he might live to God. But the truth of the matter is that dying to the law in and of itself does not enable you to live to God. Dead men don't live. And so Paul says, again, Uh, Verse 19 into verse 20, Paul says, Through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Being crucified with Christ means dying to the law, but it means more than dying to the law. It also means dying to self. Paul says, I no longer live. I have died. What does that mean? Paul, as you're speaking to me or writing these words with your hand that's moving because blood is pumping through it. What does it mean, right, that you have died? Paul, what it means is, uh, for Paul, is that his old life under the law is gone. His old life under condemnation and sin has been put to death. That was all put to death on the cross. My life is no longer about me, about my wishes, about my wants, about my strength. That's all gone. That's all gone. Well what is it about then? It's about being united to Christ by faith, right? Not only uh, does being, um, being crucified to death, uh, being crucified with Christ mean dying with Christ, but it also means living with Christ. We have been united to Him both in His death and in His life. and Christ lives in me, Paul says. Christ is at work in me. The life of Christ is in me. The living power of Christ is at work inside of me. What does that life look like? How does it work itself out day to day? Well, the rest of verse 20 tells us. Paul says, beginning, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, by by flesh here, the life I live in the flesh, Paul just means physical body. The word can mean that. Um, And he's saying, the life I now live in my physical body, what moves me forward in this life is not the law, but it's faith in the Son of God. What directs the Christian life, if not the Mosaic law, then then what? Faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Faith in Christ Calvin, in his commentary on Galatians, emphasizes the personal nature of this faith. Uh, you know, the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, Paul says, and gave himself for me. Right? It won't simply do to believe that Jesus loves people and gave himself up for people. Even the demons believe that. Paul says his life is lived in the one who loved him. And died for him. See, here is the object of our faith. Jesus, the Son of God, the incarnate one, who loved us and gave himself up for us. It's interesting that love is in the past tense here. Who loved me? It's not in the past tense because Jesus has stopped loving us. But to highlight one particular act of love. It's as if, Paul says, Jesus loved me by giving himself up for me, or he loved me when he gave himself up for me. See, in this, above all else, do we see the love of Jesus that he willingly gave himself up on the cross. He gave up his life for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Remember the question that we keep asking, right? Is is rule-keeping the way to move forward in the Christian life? Paul's answer is no. Neither keeping the Mosaic Law nor any other law you can dream up. Why not? Well, because righteousness cannot come through the law. Why not? Because the law uh, does not transform your heart. So how do we move forward then in the Christian life, Paul? What do we do? Paul says through faith in Christ, through faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Hey, why? How, do, how does that work? Well, as we look to Christ, his life is more and more worked out in us. Right? Christ lives in me. And as I look to him, his life becomes more and more evident. Now, some of you might be wondering, uh, does this mean that there's no law governing the Christian life? Right? No, no, no rule, no standard at all. Uh, the, the answer is actually no. No. Um, in fact, uh, no, there is a law governing the Christian life. Uh, in, in fact, Paul is actually going to talk about love fulfilling the law later in Galatians. So we're going to get there later in the Galatians, so stick around. Right? Um, it, it's not that Paul doesn't want us obeying God's moral standard. Right? Of course we should seek to honor God by obeying him. Of course we should seek to keep his moral rules, Right? But first, we need to understand that that the specifics of the Mosaic Law are are there to point us to Christ. That's what they do. They point us to Jesus, not, not make you righteous. They can't do that. Second, in fact, no law, Mosaic or otherwise, can transform your heart. Only Christ can do that. The law might show you your heart, but it's powerless to transform it. There was a great radio preacher in the 40s and 50s named Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he used to compare the law to a mirror. He said, you know, when you go to wash your face, you use a mirror because the mirror shows you the dirt on your face. But the mirror does not actually do any cleansing. For that, you need soap and water. God's moral law is like a mirror, right? It it tells you how to live and shows you where you failed. It shows you the dirt on your face, but it cannot cleanse us. Only Christ can do that. So is rule keeping the way to move forward in the Christian life? No. The Mosaic law pointed us to Christ and therefore is no longer a guide for Christian living. Even God's moral law cannot enable us to move forward in life. It may guide us, but it cannot move us. Are we then confined confined then to just live lives of sin? Is Christ a promoter of sin? No. Rather, having died to the law, we can now live to God because Christ lives in us. And so we walk by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Does that mean we're completely passive in the Christian life, right? Just kind of waiting around. Okay, Jesus is in me. I'll just wait for him to do something and make me a better person. And just wait around hoping that Jesus will grow us? By no means, Paul would say. Uh, We actively strive. We strive to get hold of Christ. We wrestle with him in prayer. We search for him in the scriptures. We feed our faith on Christ in the Lord's Supper. We strive uh, to obey God's moral commands. And then we fail. But at that point, we don't just double down and try harder, we look to Christ. We cry out to him for mercy and forgiveness and help. We seek him out and we try again. And maybe we do a little better, maybe not, but we eventually we stumble again. You know, it's a lot like learning to walk, which most of us don't remember. I don't remember learning to walk anyway, uh, but I remember seeing other people learn how to walk. You know, you have a toddler who's taking her first steps and she, she takes a step and what does she do? She falls, right? And, and you pick her up and you dust her off and you set her up to give it another Try and, and she falls and she cries and she looks around for you and, and you give her a hug and you dust her off and you set her up again. That's the Christian life. You, you try, you stumble, you look to Jesus to pick you up and dust you off and set you on your feet again so you can give it another go. The, the difference, of course, is that, is that Jesus is in us enabling us to walk, energizing us as we look to him. And so we keep... You know, we keep looking for the right rules or the right principles or the right routines or the right programs, but Paul says, if righteousness were through the law, if it were through programs, if it were through rules, then Christ died for no purpose. Live by faith in the Son of God, who loves you and gave himself up for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for His grace. We thank you for his willingness to come into the world to bear our sin, to die for us, that our sin might be put to death with him on the cross. We thank you that he came to rise for us, that we too might rise to newness of life. We thank you that we are united to him by faith, that we are in Christ at the cross, and that he is in us right now. We pray, Father, that you would help us to to trust in him, to look to him not to rely on our own efforts or our own abilities or or rules or laws or whatever programs we we can come up with. Father, help us to rely on Jesus moment by moment, day by day, actively looking to him that we might walk by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.